Here's the thing about new Cherry Vanilla Coke. Though Cherry's named first, all the flavors taste just as great. I mean, it could have just as easily been Vanilla Cherry Coke, or it could have been Coke Cherry Vanilla. And since it's two amazing flavors of Coke, it might have been Coke Vanilla Cherry Coke or Cherry Vanilla Coke Coke. Mm -hmm. Unless you're in France, which would make it Le Coke de la Vanilla de la Cherry de la Creme. New Cherry Vanilla Coke, so good together. And New Cherry Vanilla Coke Zero Sugar, same great taste, zero sugar. This episode is powered by Safety FM. This podcast is being sponsored by SafetyConsultantBlueprint.com. Are you willing to accept the risk? Yeah. And I've had owners tell me yes. And I, I didn't know the other part of that story. I didn't know the. I didn't know to ask them. Are you willing to accept the outcome? In this week's episode, we're going to talk to my mentor, Ryder Cobb of PBM Training Services. And in the conversation, me and Ryder talk about the Safe and Sound Week with OSHA. We also talk about tips for the consultant, as well as some general safety and health practices. We also talk about the differences between the costs, cost M, and some other safety designation programs. Do you feel that your knowledge would be better served if you were your own boss? Your knowledge can help more people improve their workplace safety. Most of what you know may be wasting in a job that limits what you can do for the overall health and safety of workers. Now is the time to start your own business while you're still working for your current employer. Start your own safety consultant business with the Safety Consultant Blueprint course. Get your business legal in just a week. Brand yourself as an authority in safety, even on a shoestring budget. No more stressing about how to price your services fairly, but still make a profit. And experience the amazing feeling of being your own boss. This 100% online video course is instructor-led and will give you detailed steps to keep you focused as to what to do next to grow your business. Lay out strategies to keep you maximizing your marketing and networking efforts. And explain how to get money in between clients. Register today at safetyconsultantblueprint.com and enter the code PODCAST. My name's Ryder Cobb. Uh, the owner of PBM Training Services in St. Gabriel, Louisiana. Uh, we have, uh, this year is our 20th anniversary of being in business, uh, serving uh, all types of industries, particularly small business um, for safety and health consulting with the OSHA laws and also developing uh, training programs uh, Probably the one that I'm most excited about and still excited about is COSS, Certified Occupational Safety Specialist, which uh, you are an instructor also, Mr. Sheldon. And that's how we met. That's how we met, yeah. And I still think I have a video of your first class in Baton Rouge. I've got to go out back and find it. Maybe I can send it to you. But Wow, that'd be awesome. 
I've got it loaded somewhere, I know. Um, but also we develop help with the extreme <clears throat> um, courteous help of the Alliance Safety Council. We develop COSS and then another class, Safe Supervisor, which is our frontline supervisor safety and health training program. Uh, excuse me. I'm uh, also an authorized OSHA outreach instructor for 10 and 30 both construction and general industry. We've done that since 1994 and still teaching it today. Um, we are currently just helping a lot of different clients out there. I have, a, I have a manufacturing facility in Baton Rouge, which is a small business, which makes uh, glass measuring devices for tanks. Wow, that's you awesome. Have, you don't have to open up the tank now to stick your head in it. Yeah. Uh, and you can actually look at the glass tube on the outside of the tank and it's a flow tube and it will measure the um, exact amount of product in the tank, which is pretty neat. Uh, we deal with a couple of pallet manufacturing companies. Uh, within those are a couple of sawmills, which are interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of hazards. We do a lot of the... Uh, we do a lot of residential construction work here, uh, and that's not by by choice, but uh, sometimes they get in trouble and they need help, um, and they give us a call. So uh, we're, we're very well known for trying to help out the small guy at the OSHA office, but also not only do that, but go in and try to help them understand why what their commitment is to the safety program and the advantages of not getting somebody hurt. Yeah, that's always the key when you have to teach an owner, you know, hey, we also can help you with productivity and everything else, but that you just have to also not hurt your workers. Right. <laughs> Keep them safe and they're going to help you with that. And everything else is ancillary. It'd be great. It helps your business. But let's make sure we don't injure anybody while we're at it. Well, over the years, you hear all these safety mottos, safety slogans, uh, safety messages. And I think the one thing that COSS has taught me being an instructor is that sometimes those messages are very uh, weak. Um, they look good on a banner. Yeah. They look good posted up on the wall. They might look good on the side of a truck. Yeah, um, I've actually had a student in one of my classes when he came to class on Monday, he had safety first on the side of his truck. And by Friday, he had it painted over. <laughs> he had removed it. <laughs> so Man. I think we did, uh, at least I think we did some, um, some good by explaining to him um, what safety and health in, in a business model really is. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah. Uh, the ongoing thing I have right now is I have a I'm doing and hopefully you'll be here in Baton Rouge in October for the conference um I can't remember I remember uh initially I got scheduled that same week or else I was supposed to be doing two topics right. and I I think at the last minute my schedule changed and I talked to Renee about it so uh currently I am not scheduled to be there okay well I think I'm still on the schedule so uh oh, good the, the topic is going to be the chair. The chair. <laughs> All right. So uh, let me see if I can uh, break this down in my mind. So uh, I think of chair. I think of uh, sometimes we have a, a symbolic chair in the middle as a person. And that person would be uh, there. And we could tell that empty chair story, if you will. 
and that's my first thought of the chair but um, then there's also the the term of a chair as far as the head of an organization. So I'm, I'm right. tossed back and forth on this one. Uh, so what well, what is it? It's it, I think it's all that rolled up into one. Um, I I'm a big fan of Dan Peterson. Oh yeah. Uh, the book uh, Safety Management: The Human Approach, which I read many years ago, and I think I pretty much based my my cost theory on on his book. Um, but he's passed away now, but he wrote an excellent book about how safety management uh, is more of a human approach versus a policy procedure approach. And though, even though we need policy procedures uh, as a program or a guide, we also need to have some values built into the program. So just let me explain the chair to you. And this, yeah, yeah, this is about kind of be a pre-op um presentation for October. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first leg of that chair, let's say it's a four-legged chair and you're sitting in it. And that first leg of that chair is is, is uh, something we call profit. Okay. Okay. Nothing wrong with making money, is it? Gotta make money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything I'm looking at on the screen right now, you, that you just didn't get that for free. You didn't buy you didn't somebody didn't give you that microphone, did they? They love my smile, so they just handed me a microphone. <laughs> That's right, a pair of headsets. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that doesn't work. Uh, no. You know, <clears throat> so that first leg is profit. The second leg um, is a leg that I'm gonna call quality. So if you look at a job or if you look at somebody doing a job for you, mm-hmm. uh, just like uh, you told me earlier, you had some irrigation services being performed on your home. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if they don't do a quality job of it, would you ever invite them back? Nope. That would be, uh, <laughs> and it would be a Google review that would have been scathing with one or two stars, you know? <laughs> That'll work. So you got one leg profit, second leg quality. The third leg, I'm going to call that quantity or production. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you if he if that guy came to you with the irrigation offer to repair or maintain or install and you uh, said, well, how long is it going to take? And he said 24 hours and he's still there two weeks later. How would you feel about his service? Yeah, then you have an issue. Yes, yeah, we got an issue. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna take off. I'm gonna got three legs now. So that fourth leg obviously is my leg. That's the safety leg. Yes. And so when I look at a job, I have to evaluate the performance of that job based on four factors. Would you not agree? Oh yeah, yeah. So that, that- profit. Quality, quantity, and safety. If you pull yep. one of those legs away, what happens to the chair? Yep, you're unstable. It fails. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have no foundation. You have no foundation. And then, of course, you know, if you didn't have a back on that chair you're in right now, where would you go? Yep, straight down probably back in that window right behind you. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of, I guess you could call it a metaphor. I don't know what you would actually call it. I've got to get a better word for it. Mm -hmm. When I look at safety and health in an organization, I look at it as four values rather than four priorities. 
Yeah, absolutely. I kind of veer people away from the terms like safety first, zero is your goal. Uh, and then here's the big one that I, that I get a, a tremendous amount of looks and controversial comments on that all accidents are preventable, uh, which I don't believe. And yeah. neither did Dan Peterson. Dan Peterson in his book says all accidents aren't preventable because you have to deal with that one element uh, every day is called human behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, um, I guess, the safety world right now is is caught up into whole uh, human and organization performance doctrines, behavioral-based safety doctrines. Some people are in the middle of that, uh, where, you know, I personally am I'm that way. We know in the cost class, we teach a whole segment on behavior-based safety. And then I also know that uh, from when I was a uh, um, a director of safety and health and and doing the job of that that i had to make sure my systems were in place so i didn't set people up for failure too so that you know my my mindset on that is i kind of merged the two i know there's a, a culpability side but then i also know the system's got to be right right you have a, you have a baseline that you're going to be measured by and even whether that's uh, an actual performance of work or the actual behavior while doing the performance at work. So there's always going to be a baseline of what's acceptable. You know, you mentioned the uh, behavior-based safety uh, module in COSS. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've kind of, over the years, you get, you, get to, you get to analyze your people that are sitting in front of you in that class every week. And a lot of the education that I get, and I'm sure you're getting too, comes from uh, the assessment of those people sitting in your class, their ideas and what they think. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, you know, when we look at behavior, I'm always going around the room saying, tell me about your behavior program. Tell me about your behavior program. And, And you get all these responses that are pretty much canned responses and uh, it makes you kind of want to open up and talk about it a little bit like most behavior observations at cards that i look at you know those cards that they use i ask him i said well how many behaviors are you observing he said 20 one card uh, another card might be 15 uh, another card wow. might be 10 i said well how many cards do you have to do today well the management team is telling me i need to do four a day three a day five a week ten a week mm-hmm. And I said, tell me the truth. When do you do them? He said, right before I leave work. (laughs) Yep. And so we get into this, uh, we get into these systems that I don't think we're very well trained or educated in to give them the purpose. You know, why? I think we're missing the why. Why do we do it? Yeah. Uh, And And I think they're targeting a number versus the quality of the assessment. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was about to say is there lies the issues with quotas because as soon as you have a quota, human nature kicks in and we know there's a goal. And then now we do whatever we need to do to hit that goal as opposed to, you know, the process and and observing the process that you're doing and all the different behaviors, everything else that goes with that. So that becomes, you know, the big, big issue. No, a policy... I was speaking with an attorney the other day. I'm I'm assisting an attorney in a case here in Baton Rouge. And uh, I've done work with them before, and we seem to get along together. And we've got a 
serious injury case uh, that took place. And it's not in occupational safety, it's in personal safety. But, you know, the two kind of blend together anyway, because a hazard is still a hazard. Absolutely. Uh, Whether you're at work or whether you're in the general public, as OSHA defines it, a hazard is still a hazard. So I've, I've learned to use my OSHA knowledge to kind of put it into layman terms for juries and for witnesses and for depositions. So, you know, there's another, there's another four, there's another four legged chair story here. Okay. So it seems (laughs) like everything ends up fours. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in the OSHA field operations manual, we talk about affirmative defenses. Yes. And those four affirmative defenses. Number one is, do you have a work rule explaining the task and how to do it safely? Uh, Do you have effective communication of the work rule to the employee? They don't even use the word training. They use the word effective communication. Yeah, and their language and understanding. Right. And do you have a method for discovering the violation? In other words, can you find where you violated an OSHA standard or a work rule prior to somebody getting hurt or prior to OSHA finding it? And the fourth one is you have good enforcement. So there we go back again, and we've got four elements of a defense. And, you know, you use that when you feel like you have been um, unfairly assessed by the OSHA guys. Mm -hmm. That to get out of a citation. But I tell people in class, go out and use it. Even if you don't have a citation, go take anything you do out there, any, any job you have, any task you perform, go out there and do those four elements of an assessment on that task yeah. and see if the uh, see if the employee knows what the enforcement is if he doesn't wear a hard hat. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a good way to figure it out. Right. Don't fire him, but ask him. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I'm seeing a lot of these uh, plant um, life safety rules. I'm seeing a lot of those slowly going away for some reason. Yeah. Uh, and truly, I know when um, there are some industries that are really high end as far as safety and health, that's what they do. That's It's culture driven for them. And then there's some industries that are flying by the seat of the pants, <laughs> unfortunately. And, uh, and the records do show which companies are which. <laughs> and, yeah, you will see those, especially come annual time when they OSHA does their, their release of numbers. But uh, truly, I think um, when when an organization can get it, it's so good when you see the change in the system, the change in the way that people feel about going to work. And then the flip side is when they don't, you also see that too, where you know there are no real um, people that are going to be engaged and then that disengagement is where uh, safety gets challenging I think it does so you know over the years of course you know when we designed COSS we designed it so that all instructors would have some baseline to teach it from everybody Mm -hmm. would be consistent pretty much across the board and I always made this comment except for about 15% of that which is personality because every instructor has got a different personality that he brings to the table uh, yeah. when he teaches that class. So, you know, you've got 
uh, got probably uh, 85% consistency and the rest of it personality. And uh, that's what makes it, I think, so unique because everybody comes to the table with a little bit different information or an different interpretation. But I think also that the success of the program has been having that that um, relationship between the instructor and the content. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I get the question all the time about uh, cost versus cost M versus CSP and C, you know, all the other ones out there. Right. <laughs> and uh, my general answer to that, and um, first, just to back up, it always seems like uh, sometimes there's a us against them mentality for different certificate holders. And I don't know if it's just me and my interpretation, but I do kind of see that in, especially when you get into big gatherings of safety professionals and you see everybody's uh, designation on their actual uh, lapel pin with their, their name on there. And it seems almost like a clickish thing to me. And uh, in turn, I get a lot of students that are coming in and they have field experience, but they may not have uh, the degree to do uh, like a CSP per se, because uh, that prerequisites a degree. And uh, so I almost feel and sometimes I get that impression through talking to the students that is a, a less than feel of another degree versus something that's, you know, or to say designation as opposed to, you know, a CSP or one of the other uh, ones that have been in the business longer. Well, originally the design for COSS was never to override any other certification out there. That was not the intent, never was, never will be. It's just to give the folks in the field who were less fortunate to have a college degree or whatever, to give them some type of uh, certification that they have a certain level of knowledge about a task, an industry, in a process of federal government entity. And uh, I do know some CSPs that support us wholeheartedly um, because they'll, they'll walk into an operation just like you and I would to assess the needs of that operation. What do you need from me from safety and health standpoint? And a CSP friend of mine here in town will walk in and he'll do the same assessment. And uh, if they're not ready for CSP, he'll tell them to go take the cost class. Yeah, there so you go. We have a lot of endorsements from other certified safety professionals who see it as a gateway to get them started. I, I've actually had students take my class that would call me back after they took the CSP exam and say that the COSS class really did was one of the contributing factors of them doing well on that exam. Excellent. Excellent. And I tell my students all the time, I said, it, it honestly is personal for you. What's what's your end goal? Each designation, anything you get, even a degree, if you're going the school route, it should have an end goal. So that's what I, I tell my students, you know, what's your end goal? And then let's let's deal with it that way. And that should be why you choose a designation. Right. Right. And along with that designation, now you got to perform. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you want to make sure you can do that. <laughs> yeah, you got to go out there and prove that you can do it. And uh, yeah. I think uh, I think we've done very well with that. I think, yeah. Um. Uh. Another thing I'd like to mention, if I can. Yeah, uh, please do. August twelfth, next week, is 
the Safe and Sound Week? Safe and Sound Week, right. And I posted a little uh, comment on LinkedIn yesterday. Uh, Sherry Bankston was the first to respond to it, but um, uh, I did post it and uh, told everybody to go to the website, go to OSHA.gov and go to the Safe and Sound link and pull up the map um, of all the people in the country who are participating next week in some sort of free training or free stand down or safety lunch or a safety awards or whatever. But the map is, is slowly getting very well populated. Awesome. Um, is the Alliance part of that? Alliance, uh, the Mid-South OSHA Training Institute uh, is a sponsor. Oh, good. So and, if, um, you go, if you go to, you know, you see the participants on the map. If you go to the sponsor link uh, on the website, you'll see all the industries in the country who have sponsored Safe and Sound. So okay. there's two categories. There's the people who are participating in it, and then there's the the sponsorship page, which is over 200 different sponsors. And wow. Mid-South, the Mid-South OTI is one of them. Well, awesome. Well, I will um, look into that because I I want to see if there's uh, someone in my area that I can at least go to and support. And I also want to talk to you about uh, fall protection mm-hmm. and uh, your experience on fall protection from when you you know started in a business prior to actually having a standard. Uh, right. That's, <laughs> that uh, that's like one of my my all time favorite stories about how you know people didn't even uh, want to take your call or let you in the door until right. after the, the CFR, the standard comes and all of a sudden they're breaking yeah. down your door. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, you know, I had an interesting time with that. That, that was way before COSS. Yeah. Uh, actually, that was before I started PBM training services, but I had um, my two boys when the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts um, here in Baton Rouge and one of the ladies that helped me in the participation of the scouting uh, program here in Baton Rouge was a lady named Penny Cano. I still hmm. remember her name and uh, she had a son that was friends with my sons and she worked for a scaffold company at Exxon Mobil at the refinery. Hmm. And um, this is right Right when OSHA had updated subpart M, 1926, and I think it was around 1994-95, when everybody was starting to read about it and look at harnesses and look at fall protection in a different um, fashion. But you know, even before meeting her, I, we were we were ordering harnesses at a place where I used to work called Job Site Supplies, and I was making sales calls with these full body harnesses, and people were looking at me like I was nuts walking into a room with a this contraption that you're supposed to put over your shoulders and your waist and your legs and they were wearing body belts if they were wearing body belts if they were wearing anything at all yeah uh, they had never had a harness on and they looked at me and basically would kick me out of their office saying we don't wear that stuff and of course a few months later when they got the news from washington which back then was really kind of slow we didn't have the website we didn't have smartphones we had beepers and we had pay phones and the way people got information was basically through salespeople like myself oh yeah uh, so they would they would call me back and uh 
and uh, they'd call job sites office and say we're his writer there and we need those harnesses and <laughs> you please bring That's a good. few down here and i'd go take them down there and i'd get them to sign the ticket and deliver the product and then i'd be on my way back to the main office and my boss would beat me on my beeper and of course i had to pull over and find a say a payphone somewhere in a safe area oh, wow back and uh, he would question me. He said, have you delivered those harnesses? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, they're calling us up. And, you know, they, they, they've got, they got a question. I said, well, do they have a problem? He said, no, no problem. You've got to go back down there and show them how to put them on. Yeah, yes. So, so had no I would clue. Have to go back and have a little class on how to put on a harness. Pretty interesting. But, wow. Uh, but Penny Cano... Uh, pretty much put us on the on on the on the map when it came to fall protection because when I went out there I asked those guys a loaded question I said if you had a harness made the way you would want it made what would it look like and of course I ended up with about 20 recommendations for things that they would like to see in a full body harness and brought it back to job site and contacted the only vendor we had at the time was descent control out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, a guy named Mike Bell, who oh. was from Philadelphia, owned it. And he had three ladies in a in a shop in Fort Smith sewing harnesses. And uh, hmm. I, I faxed so him. Made it right there from your own, uh, your own recommendations right from the client. So you get that to the manufacturer. They go to work and, and give you a custom-made product. That's what happened. And uh, Mike Bell was this unbelievable futuristic thinker. He was a design guy. He owned a boot, a work boot company in Philadelphia called Jordan David. And he would design specialized footwear for industry. And so I sent him the specs by fax. That's all we had. So we had to fax the specs up there to him. And he built a prototype and sent it down to me and I took it out to Exxon and they ordered 300 of them. Wow. Which at that time was the biggest order job site supplies I'd ever seen. Oh my goodness. I can <laughs> imagine they're, they're probably like at this point, uh, you know, we're focusing only on the fall protection <laughs> or that, something. That's all similar. they do and they're still in business today. You can call Tim Babin at 293-2000 and yeah, oh, look at that. Phone. That's not area code. Uh, your guys are 225. Area code is 225. Yeah, two nine three two thousand job site supplies and Tim or Clayton, the owner, will answer. And uh, that's awesome. Their their whole warehouse now is safety products. Uh, wow! So they left the mill supply industry and tool and die industry and got into safety back in nineteen the early nineteen nineties and uh, ninety four, and they've been doing it ever since. So uh, yeah, that's great. That was a. Uh, so. That's how I got into that fall protection industry. And we did a lot of work. We did a lot of work. A lot, uh, did of, you, a lot of lifelines, a lot of designs. Did that, uh, and that might be answering my question there. Did you um, uh, get transitioned into your own business from there? Or was that also while you were still doing your own business? Well, I, I had not started PBM yet. Um, I didn't start PBM until 1998. But what happened at JobSite was I learned the value of training. Okay. And we found out that we could sell more product if we were educated and how that product was used correctly. 
and mm -hmm. how, to, how to educate other people in the application of that product. Uh, so we just weren't taking orders and delivering harnesses. We were actually going out, helping them to design anchor systems, uh, uh, horizontal lifeline systems, um, teaching them how retractable lifelines work, uh, safety nets. So we did a little bit of everything. We, 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 at the very beginning, it was hard to find American companies that would engineer fall protection systems. Yeah. Um, we would have to go to Canada to find the guys up there uh, who had experience in uh, developing fall protection equipment because Canada had been using it way before we were. Hmm. So, so you basically uh, partnered with them or at least got educated through them. Absolutely. And then that's what you use for your for the product, basically. There was a company in Canada back in the 94, 95 era called Surety. And Surety specialized in designing anchor connectors, hmm. which if you look at fall protection programs, your biggest challenge in any fall protection program is your anchor point is the availability and the location and the design of the anchor point. Yeah, the rest of it is pretty easy. It's like opening up a Sears and Roebuck catalog and you go in there and you pick out which harness you want now and what kind of adapter you want, what kind of connector, but still the biggest problem in, in that industry is the education of developing anchor points throughout your facility. Now, when you go through that and, and, Every time I sit through you talking about subpart M, I'm there with a book open and write notes and just you know, <laughs> getting as much information as I can. I remember one of our first talks years and years ago when when you opened my eyes are on the 3,600 pounds versus the 5,000 pounds and uh, how there had to be a qualified person in there. And, you know, my whole mind was blown at that point years ago, you know, and I read it's right there in the standard, you know, but no one ever reads that part. They stop at the 5,000 pounds and they don't know the ore section, you know, that that for me, I keep thinking, well, I know it in theory. I know if you look into uh, some of the uh, I guess it might be the preambles. If you go back into preambles, there's probably wording of how to apply uh, that portion of a qualified person looking at your anchors. So is there a, is there a cheat sheet or, or <laughs> rule of thumb to go by? Or do I have to go back to the preamble for that? Well, the preamble gives you a lot of information uh, more than you want, for sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, just on the 5,000 pounds, there's probably 30 pages in the preamble that explain how OSHA came up with uh, the 5,000 pound anchor point. No. Uh, but then the, the biggest challenge is when you sit down with a industrial person and you're trying to design their fall protection systems. And once you get past the harness and the lanyard and the connectors, now you got to get into the tough part and you got to explain the anchor points. And uh, I'll never forget talking to a plant guy one day, explaining what the term safety factor of two means. Oh yeah, with the harness. And I spent about an hour explaining how to design an anchor point to the safety factor of two. And he said, Ryder, that looks great, but I still want my 5,000 pounds. So, <laughs> so he, it went right over his head. That, that, yeah. That's for sure. But uh, there are some uh, really good people out there doing a lot of good work in fall protection. And I think industry has learned 
that the engineering approach is the best, as we always teach in safety, engineering is the best approach to control a hazard exposure. Yeah. Uh, so you see, even on rail car loading, you see more engineered systems now with complete um, walk and work and services that are that are operated hydraulically with guardrail systems where a rail car can pull up under that system and then hydraulically that whole platform will come down around that rail car where a person, a worker can access the top of that rail car with, and he doesn't even have to wear fall protection equipment. Yeah, awesome. Uh, like a personal fall arrest system. He's, he's guarded with a good walking, working surface. He's got a good guardrail system and he can perform his job uh, without having to don the uh, the personal fall arrest system and find an anchor point. Yeah, and, and I would imagine that the workplace, the job might actually even go faster because then you could deploy multiple people to do the one task and they'll all be safe. Correct. And it just took a while to make that that sale that, you know, instead of spending uh, $3,000 on equipment, harnesses, lanyards, and training, and hopefully finding anchor points, yeah. uh, they can spend a hundred grand one time and be done with it. And yep. so I think the, the cost evaluation, you know, you go back to that leg, those four legs of that chair, you know, what we see is that safety now is being, you know, safety is a part of your business model. It can actually help you make money. It can help you save money. It can help. It's a lot of things that the safety element of that business can do. Um, you just got to realize that, it's, that when you're assessing performance or task or industries, you got to assess all four legs of that chair, not just one. And um, that's where we're starting to see that um, your logistics people, the people who load rail cars, load tank uh, tank trucks, uh, even in the in the washing bays where they clean chemical tanks, uh-huh. that those engineered systems help them perform much better and safer. And they can get more work done. So yeah, it's just a good, hmm. it's a good sale all the way around. Yeah, I, um, that for a lot of people that uh, that are listening to this podcast in particular, they're the ones who are uh, mostly trying to transition out of their job and they want to get into being a consultant for themselves they know that that concept you just explained about you know hey it may cost you a little bit more now but you are going to end up getting a better system it's going to work better for you uh how do they translate that into selling their services and say hey the service i'm going to help you is not only going to um the I, I should say what what would be the the elevator speech or or the the sales proposal if you're writing this out in a detailed proposal what what topics or points do you really want to uh, to highlight to let them know that this will have a return of investment? Well, I, I think you still go back to the four legged chair. Now, when you you address uh, safety in the four basic elements that OSHA has, and it's even on the Safe and Sound website right there. You see that wheel. You see the basics. Yeah. Of, Oops, sorry. It's uh, <laughs> the wrong button. Of, um, you know, you see the basics of safety. All you got to do is read the white papers yeah. on the um, new updated safety and health management page on the OSHA website. And yeah. you can talk, you can listen to the CEOs and read the white papers where 
after they initially recognized safety was as important as profit, quality, quantity, production, all the way across the board, that Mm -hmm. once they put the emphasis on working safe into their operation, all four of those elements exceeded expectations. Okay. Okay. Cost went down, profit went up. Uh, A lot of people uh, nowadays, you know, with the advent of ISNet World and and Avada and all these other operations out there that are screening contractors in industrial markets, uh, nobody wants to hire an unsafe person. Absolutely. Uh, For the majority, and that's the lesson I think that I've seen over the last 20 years, that 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 message has become uh, more and more evident that um, unsafe work uh, equates to less profit, uh, less quality, and less quantity. Yeah, and if you if you put that in a um, in a package, so to speak, it's more of an education to the potential client that hey, uh, you are going through safety through your own eyes from your past experience. But uh, I could tell you from these white papers, from my experience, from everything else, other clients that uh, going with this safety service, safety system, I give you new written programs, that that is going to end up uh, creating a better overall uh, work atmosphere for you. Mm -hmm. For years, I would see people implement programs, but they never would do a periodic assessment of how those programs were working. I guess we call that an audit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for years, I was always a big advocate of every program in your book should have an audit. You should have a way of uh, testing it, a way of measuring it, the performance of it to see if it's working. You know, not just print up the policy and throw it out there and hope it works. Uh, and so now with the um, with OSHA coming back with the updated uh, management system that they did in 2016, they have added audits on there. And uh, I, I was really surprised and I was elated to see that they were, um, that they have that, um, that included in their recommendations for a safety and health program right now, that they have that system of you going in and um, doing a internal audit, or if you have to, hire a consultant to come out and do a, do an external audit. Okay. Yeah. To see where you stand on your safety and health uh, um, recommended practices. Uh, yep. That just, um, that was just overwhelming to me that they put that in there. And so they also saw that, um, that, um, you know, a part of this safe and sound week is to, is hopefully to advertise that in the workplace. I've got commercial contractors now in Baton Rouge that don't work in plants that are looking at their subcontractor safety performance with the bid. Good. Uh, recently, as of a few years ago, sitting in a meeting when we were building the second location for the safety council in Gonzales, I was in a meeting with a general contractor and a sub in a pre-job meeting. I believe he was either the roofer or the guy who's going to put the siding on the building. I can't remember exactly. Yeah. But he looked up at the general general contractor representative 
and said, um, Mr. John, I can't work for y'all anymore. Y'all asked for too much safety stuff. <laughs> wow. And I just sat there for a minute and Mr. John, who owns the construction company or one of the general managers of this uh, commercial contractor looked at him. He said, well, good luck on finding work because we're all doing it. Yep. So the market has a tendency to, you know, if you're not on board with safety, uh, you may not be in business in the next 10 years. Yeah. And I think that's one of the ways to communicate it to them. Well, that's a a great point because, you know, I I get that a lot. And my determination was there's some people who get it in far as business wise. So generally what I do is I um, I pick my clients, if you will. Uh, I sometimes you didn't have that luxury where <laughs> if they can choose the clients. But uh, at, at this point right now, I I know I guess it's more like I know who to select to go to for a client. And I, I even do like LinkedIn lookups and I, I see what, what kind of company they have and I'll go to the website and I want to see if there's any mention of safety as part of their uh, organizational culture and the, the paperwork that uh, I see uh, facing publicly. And then after that, uh, I'll decide, okay, this is a good person to approach or uh, they may have approached me already. So uh, I go through that process because in my mind, I think I know that there's a certain uh, mindset that happens after you get a taste of, you know, my business can really go very well or, or even bigger if I do this right with safety and health. And I don't care the motive. I just want them to do good safety and health. And, you know, we'll work on the motive later as they start seeing that, you know, it is a good bet to get into the safety culture for a business culture. And uh, so in my mind, I'm kind of screening that kind of client. Do you do any of that in, in with your business? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've walked away from clients. All right. That, okay. so I'm not wrong then. Um, you know, I, I had a construction company years ago call me up and wanted me to go and do safety surveys of all their job sites. And they may have had 10 or 12 different const- active construction sites going on within the parish here in East Baton Rouge. And uh, they wanted me to bid on doing that and giving them back reports. And I actually was sitting in front of the owners and I said, well, uh, I said, what happens if I leave? this job site and I go to another job site to identify hazards and corrective actions and somebody gets hurt an hour later on another job site, who are you going to hold responsible? And we're going to hold you responsible. And I said, well, you know, what are your supervisors doing? He said, well, they're too busy for safety. They're, they're, they're doing production. Yep. And I said, well, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because even back then, you know, it was, it was, you, you were setting yourself up to fail. And there's no way without management commitment, without, and I'm going to even drive it down a little bit further, without supervisory commitment to a safety yeah. program, you really don't have a safety program. Uh, now, you can have, you can be kind of flaky up at the management, up at the Oval Office yeah. <laughs> area up there. It's what I call it. Yeah. But if your frontline supervisors are not understanding the four-legged chair theory, 
and they have the the right to discipline. They have the right to correct. They have the right to coach. Yeah. Uh, they're the third element of that affirmative defense. So when you go in and you say, OSHA, I have a third element of that defense. I have a method for discovering the violation. Well, that method for discovering the violation before somebody gets hurt, before OSHA finds it, is your supervisor. Absolutely. They're there for you. They're supposed to be there for you. <laughs> yes. And he's the one. Yeah. Now, I'm, not, I'm not the first person to say that. Um, a guy named Heinrich said it in 1931. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy with the pyramid. <laughs> yeah, Heinrich said that the um, key to accident prevention is the value of the quality of the frontline supervisor. It's still true today. Still true today, and so that's the that's the one area I think that if we had to develop a ongoing program, or if OSHA was to get involved with an ongoing training program that that would be the number one focus would be the frontline supervisor. Yeah. And uh, my heart's always been to um, help consultants. And then also the other side is um, I always keep thinking about how can I help someone who isn't so familiar with OSHA to feel like, you know, OSHA is our friend. We should work together and get clients feeling you know, more comfortable with the OSHA presence. Um, I don't know, am I uh, alone in that thought or should should I help protect my clients against uh, OSHA? Well, uh, I don't know no, my, my approach. All the advertising I see and what I put in my LinkedIn comment yesterday about safe and sound, um, I made a little... I made a little comment toward the federal government. I said in my comment on LinkedIn that even though OSHA does not officially have any leadership right now, they're really doing a good job to pull this safe and sound program off. I mean, it's done very well. And Absolutely. a lot of participants. And the reason I said it that way is because as of today, OSHA does not have any leadership. Uh, yeah, well, Scott Mugno should be their leader, but uh, nobody but, running. Yeah, there's a yeah. temporary young lady up there, Miss Sweat, and I'm yes. sure she's very dedicated to it. But she has not been formally um, cleared by Congress to run the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And right now, we're, we're even still trying to get somebody to run the Department of Labor. So the whole department is in sort of a chaos mode right now. But yeah. for OSHA to keep doing what they're doing is one element. Of it. The other element of it is we, we advertise OSHA as the big bad cop. Yeah. Um, you know, the odds of a person seeing an OSHA representative in their lifetime is almost the uh, same odds as winning the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> so when I talk to people, you know, I said OSHA is, is out there. Don't get me wrong. OSHA is out there and OSHA can be uh, an enforcement part of the program. They can also be an extremely big help in the program. It depends on how you want to approach them. Uh, but I also tell them that, okay, there, there's several things that I've learned again. And actually, this is a model that's being taught in California right now. I went out to California last August uh, as, un, uh, under the direction of the Alliance Safety Council to learn how to teach a new class that the state of California requires now. It's called highly hazardous facility training. And uh, yes. 20 hour program that you have to 
have documented training before you can actually enter a refinery in the state of California now. Wow, that's good. So the basis of that training is this. Uh, you have the ability to recognize risk and you have the ability to accept that risk, correct? Yeah. Whether no, no matter what level in the organization you're in, if you're an owner of a company and you're building roofs and repairing rooftops on residential um, homes, you're mm-hmm. accepting some level of risk. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that could be a financial risk. That could be a being in business risk. That could be a competition risk. Uh, it could be, but, you know, my point is the safety risk. You know, let's put OSHA on the side. Let's say OSHA doesn't even exist. Okay. And let's go in there and say, okay, you've got this risk. You've got two workers on top of a roof. Are you willing to accept the risk? Yes, sir. Good. Are you willing to accept the outcome? Yeah, that becomes a different question. <laughs> Correct. Or the consequences. You know, what are you are you willing to accept a fatality? Mm. Are you willing to accept uh, two broken wrists? Um, are you willing to accept uh, a electrocution with an aluminum ladder on a 50 kV power line no. and and the thing about it is all of this has happened in the last 12 months here in Baton Rouge no, with, small, so. with small business so are you willing to if you're willing to accept the risk are you willing to accept the outcome yeah absolutely it's a fair question to ask and uh, another way to get someone who is caught with the um <laughs> That excuse when it's an automatic kind of a thing where they basically will use it as a defense mechanism to say, oh, yeah, I'm willing to, to accept that risk. Yeah. I'm willing to accept that risk. But the wording of consequence or the wording that, that shifts or that that's a good way of putting it that might uh, challenge that person's, you know, their well, here's another way to address it. Which one do you have control over? Yeah. That's true. Risk the outcome. or the outcome? Which one do you have control over? Yeah, you have absolutely. control over the risk. That's true. <laughs> because I was thinking the outcome because you mitigated the risk. That's why I was thinking in my mind, you mitigate the risk, then you have control of the outcome. But, and it, it took me a while out there last August for two weeks in California to wrap that that um, that uh, that model around my head to, to really get in there and and do it because this is an adult training program that they put together. So actually you sit there and you let those guys, you let them pick the risk. And we have a little session in there where we hand out cards. Mm -hmm. There are three outcomes on the card. One of them says nothing bad happened. Uh, The other one says fail, hit my head, got three stitches. Uh, The third outcome is, um, hit another car, killed two people in another car, ran off the road. We do one on texting. And um, the fourth outcome was I died. Wow. <laughs> and we, we we hand out these cards like you're playing poker. Everybody gets a different card. We show them a picture and we get everybody to respond to that risk in that picture. And we get them to start thinking, well, one guy walked away and the other guy didn't. The other guy died. Wow. So that's how you know who got the die card? Yeah, and then we go to the guy with the die card and you ask him this question. Well, 
if you died today, who are you going to leave behind? Wow. So it gets to a very uh, intense emotional state in that class where these students are coming in thinking that I'm going to sit up there and run through a series of PowerPoints uh, and give them a certificate. And that's not going to be the case. They're going to have to tell me it's a behavioral class. Yeah. It's a very good class, but it got me to thinking too, how do I approach a customer or a client? You know, are you willing to accept the risk? Yeah. And I've had owners tell me yes. And I, I didn't know the other part of that story. I didn't know the, I didn't know to ask them, are you willing to accept the outcome? Yeah, that's a that's a real good way of putting it. I, I've never heard it phrased that way, and it really makes some sense to me. It kind of changed my whole way of presenting COSS now. Um, we go in one of those CSB movies that I show. I show you the williams Olafen explosion here in Geisner, Louisiana, where it took, it actually took 10 years for the incident to take place, but the the risk that they took over the ten years finally had an outcome to it. Was that the one with the valves where uh, they're trying to manipulate the valves and they're doing a, um, a turnover or something? It was it was very it the wasn't often yeah it wasn't it's called often. blocked in. The movie's called Blocked In. Okay, and I use it during my um, incident investigation module. And I show people that this case, this this series of events was 10 years long before they killed two people. Yeah. So every one of those events that took place had a risk. It could be, a, you know, they, they didn't check off one of the um, items on the pre-start checkup review when they were going to put the... the uh, instrument back online. They budged it. The Oval Office checked it, but didn't follow up on it. And so that it's just a series of elements that mm -hmm. they were taking a risk every time they performed it. And the outcome finally hit them 10 years later. Yeah. Well, I am. Um, I do see how that could happen especially when um, what you know prior to my my life as a consultant I was uh, head of a wastewater facility and part of the actual facility was uh, PMs we had endless preventative maintenance tasks to do and in some cases uh, there were some tasks that I when I find out it was missed for in cases you know, several, several months, almost to a year. And yeah. something as simple as exercising a valve and mm -hmm. just to make sure it works when you need it. Uh, and it gets behind a worker's mind. And then all of a sudden uh, it becomes a, an accepted deviation of not doing that. Correct. And then that kind of builds up. So I could kind of see how that event happened and how it became 10 years in the making, especially if there's turnover somewhere in there in the uh, in the higher up area. But I think the risk and outcome um, model is pretty good. Uh, yeah, it's a great model. A lot of people don't understand that. And so I've learned now to ask that question. And another one more question I ask my clients, um, you know, you mentioned it earlier. We call it ROI, return on investment. If I spend all this money, uh, on the program, what am I going to get in return yeah. from an investment standpoint? Well, I've recently uh, 
been kind of researching that and I've come to come to the decision that there's another one. There's an ROE. Return on E. Let's see. Return on uh, effort. Expectation. Expectation. Hmm. I'm going to nail one of these. <laughs> <laughs> so you're sitting down in front of that client and I think the hardest thing as a consultant is tell me what you want me to do. Yeah. You tell me. So I think the biggest part of that first meeting is defining the expectation. Defining, okay, you know, you're gonna, you hopefully define the scope of work to get to an expectation. Yeah, absolutely. And so you want to make sure that you're very clear in your written agreement, whether it's an official contract or a lot of times I'll just do a letter of agreement that, you know, yeah. basically will stand up in court, but it's, it's not a, um, it's not a contractual by law relationship. It's a letter of agreement, but we both sign it. Yeah, I do. It outlines too. in detail, you know, what I do and what I need from them. Yep, I do that too. It makes it makes it so much easier. It really does. And I actually missed it on one client that was referred to me by someone else, and I took it because it was a nice, easy of uh, writing some um, written programs for her. Mm-hmm. And, and I regretted it because it was one of the things that was supposed to be in and out, nice and simple. And I was dealing with this lady for like six months on something that took roughly a few hours. And it was just, it was infuriating. And it made me say, I'm never going to do something like this without my standard contract again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you learn, you have those, you have those episodes over your consulting career where you're going to learn how to kind of offset that in the future. You try to get rid of all the excuses up front all the barriers, as many of them as you can up front. And that comes with a little experience, but still, if you sit down with a person and ask them, number one, you know, what do you, what do you want from me? Um, this is what I need from you. And you design a scope and you design an expectation. And you also design a length of time that is going to take place before you come back and reassess what you've done so far. Yeah. A lot of times programs are written, um, but there's no assessment. There's no audit connected to it to where I can come back and say, okay, are you doing what you just wrote on a piece of paper? Are you doing it? Yeah, well, that's true. Because a lot of people, it's just you give them a plan and it's a little checklist and you know, it sits somewhere and they yeah. never open it again. And if you really want a really bad OSHA um, situation, we can sure have one by showing them a bunch of documents that you printed up and you interview your employees and nobody even knows one word in that document. They can't, they can't even, they can't even summarize it. Uh, they don't know where it is. <laughs> they don't even know where it is. I tell a lot of people in my class that, you know, my goal is not to pass an OSHA inspection. My goal is to pass an OSHA interview. Yeah, there you go. Because, uh, uh, you know, if you train your supervisors to do OSHA interviews, then they can find the deficiencies right there. Yeah. And I 
I uh, I have to always you know tell my client, hey, when you when you are getting interviewed, you know I can't be there, you can't be there when it's the actual uh, worker. But if it's supervisory, then that's a different role. So then we're there. I'm not coaching the supervisors. I always tell them, you know, just say what you saw. Don't say what you think or don't say <laughs> what you want to infer. Just say what you actually saw. And there's a couple of times that in and there was one case where uh, I just had to keep correcting the supervisor as to we don't know that yet because the report didn't come back from uh, from a certain office. And like, so just stick with what you saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, those are the few techniques I try to use uh, when, you know, talking to people who need safety and health. You know, there's three reasons why you get a call, I'm pretty sure. Right. First one is somebody's gotten hurt and yep. they're scared to death and they know probably that they had to call it into the OSHA office and they don't know what to do. They don't know what to expect. Yeah. They, they get your name through a series of networks or recommendations or they may yep. just look you up in the phone book or whatever like that. I, I've had all I have. I've had those happen to me in many different ways. That's usually the first call. The second reason I may get called is because they've already had an OSHA visit and uh, they, they've they gotten a citation in the mail. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah, uh, they've never that's my it. number one reason yeah. when I get called. That's my number one reason. Either them or their insurance company's calling. Right. And uh, so they, they'll, they'll call you and get you to come out there. The third reason people call me, which is not too often, and I, I've got one right now in Baton Rouge that called me last year and said, Ryder, we need a safety and health program. We got your name from some source. Uh, would you come out and talk to us? I said, well, you know, have you got anybody hurt? And they said, no. Have you had an OSHA visit? No. I said, well, why are you calling me? <laughs> well, because we just know it's the right thing to do and we want to start off on the right foot. And you get those calls every once in a while. Yes, that's true. You really have to commend the owner for taking that step because, you know, it is going to cost a little money. He's going to have to invest in it. And uh, the biggest thing is he's actually going to have to do it. Yep, that's true. And uh, I do find when I'm, when I find owners that are doing that, generally it's going to be someone that bids for a contract. And they know that uh, eventually if they want to start playing at a higher level, that they're going to end up having to address safety and health and uh, everything else, all kinds of you know deficiencies, the product and the equipment they buy and everything else. So they think of safety as being part of that uh, decision to say, all right, not only are we going to upgrade into a better front end loader or whatever it is with more attachments, but we're also going to invest a little bit extra more in, in safety because we don't need to buy any more equipment if our experience modification rates too high. <laughs> so that's right. the, that's what I get when when those bosses are proactive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, workers' comp people can be a good source for recommendations, also because uh, a lot of clients think that the workers' comp guy is the safety guy. Yep. <laughs> I see that a lot. And, and, uh, that's not that's not the case. Uh, you know, I, I think most of them uh, have good risk managers within their organization. I'm, that's a market that I see is growing. I see a lot of workers comp uh, providers hiring 
a separate task force for risk management mm-hmm. to go educate their clients. So we're seeing, and you might've seen some in your cost class, I see a lot of those guys starting to show up that work for insurance companies that don't sell the policy. They just go out and call on the support policy holders to make sure that they understand the risk assessments and they understand the OSHA requirements. Um, and they'll try to guide them in the right place. Uh, they may not actually do it for them, but they'll I try to guide them into a source where they can get that help. Another good, uh, habit that consultants can get into is knowing their resources, uh, like the OSHA.gov website, the NIOSH website, yeah, all, absolutely. Uh, all those tools. And then again, know that every state has an OSHA consultation office. Now, a lot of some consultants may say, well, that's free. And I say, well, it is free, but I've actually been able to, to charge for my services and use them all in one client. It, awesome. sort, of re- it sort of reinforces my decision making with my client to tell them okay we need to do this this and this and you'll have that separate entity come out and do that completely free assessment for anybody under 250 employees and give them a written assessment uh that the the things they've got to fix that doesn't mean that they know how to fix them they're still going to come to me but still it gives me a little more ammunition to say, yeah, okay, you know, this guy came from the OSHA, state OSHA consultation office, and he found that you needed this program, this program, this training, and this element of your program developed. And then they'll come back to me, and it just helps me. Yeah, that's actually a great approach because, quite honestly, if there's a lot of times I start contracts out, and when I start the contract, I'm basically saying that. Um, I can't give you what you need right away until I could do an assessment only because in some cases what they're asking for is going to, uh, if I know through an assessment and audit of their facility, then I know how to direct the final product that they're really wanting. So I'm not trying to upsell them per se, but in order for me to to do the job right, I needed to get a certain understanding of their system and an audit will give me that. So Mm -hmm. if I were to get an audit from a third party that's free to them, then, you know, I would do the service work of the audit is basically Mm -hmm. your your idea. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I've done that several times and it's been very beneficial for both sides. Yeah, that's great because um, I'm trying to branch out to a few more states and uh, and I have to do it in my calendar and, and, and schedule that out right. But um, my thought process is if I'm getting to a new state, how can I actually uh, get some more work? and reduce the learning curve there. So that means I have to find the right client and I have to, uh, they're going to have to be comfortable enough for me to you know, get that work. So um, is that a technique that you think might work? Is going to a consultation office and partnering with them or, or uh, getting some clients their way? I think most of them that I've dealt with uh, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi have been very open about helping me and me helping them. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see um, a lot of times, um, especially like in Louisiana, I'm good friends with Corey Gaines, 
he's the laworks.net safety guy up there. He works for the state of Louisiana, but he's OSHA consultation. And you wouldn't believe how busy those people are. Uh, there are small businesses that do rely on them. And um, I think with a combination of, of me knowing him to where if he gets in a bind and uh, he's come to the end of his comp, of his commitment in his 18 months, whatever they agree on, and they say you need further help, he can automatically just refer that client to a, to a private consultant yeah. for me. And I've seen that happen a lot. So I think it's good to at least knock on their door and let them know you're in town and share your resume and your services with them. Yeah, it's always good to have that resume, right? Oh, when yeah. you go on your own, you kind of think you don't need it anymore, but no, you need it. You do need it. You do need it. I, you know, the one in Mississippi uh, operates through Mississippi State University. Is that your alma mater? No, Ole Miss is my my mother. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember. I know it's Mississippi. I just couldn't Mississippi remember. Mississippi State is, a, is another sister school there. Um, okay. But in Brandon, Mississippi is where the OSHA consultation office is. So they have a full-fledged safety department that they operate uh, on the state level through the university system. So you might see some states operate it like, like Louisiana operates on the state level. Texas, Oshkon operates it on the state level. And then you go to Mississippi and the OSHA consultation is managed through the university system. Yeah, that's how Florida is. Yeah, so you'll, you'll, you'll do it. You know, you have all these great um, people that you're working with that you can call them up. I just had a, uh, a welding assessment done as a small business here in Baton Rouge last year by an industrial hygienist, a certified industrial hygienist from the state of Louisiana that didn't cost us a dime. Oh, that's great. And so they give me the assessment. Now I'm able to go in and build and show them the measurement on the hexavalent chromium is what we were measuring. And we able to go in there and say, hey, you know, this this is the this is what the order our assessment is. And I can go in there and start my charge, my time, and develop the program they need for hexavalent chromium and keep them in compliance. Yeah, that's so great. A good relationship with them. That's awesome because um, truly uh, the Rolodex of people and industries and even support that you need keeps growing and growing and growing. So IH is definitely, if you don't have an IH for anybody listening, uh, you need to have someone you know in your circle that's IH. And if you don't, then Ryder just gave you an answer. <laughs> Get a hold of that you go, you go hire an IH in Louisiana, it's about 220 bucks an hour. At minimum, yes, absolutely. Yes, and uh, that's just for them to show up. Yeah. And then they're going to charge you for writing the document, and uh, I got the same service from the state OSHA consultation office at no charge. And then there's some qualifications you have to meet, uh, and there's some scheduling challenges because it is free. Yeah. So you know, they're not – you can't – expect to get them within the next 30 days so you're going to have to schedule out um but it's still a good a good resource well that's great information and for uh again one of the things that uh i guess as you guys are listening to the podcast is uh 
you know, Ryder and I go way back. We we go down rabbit holes. Uh, <laughs> Ryder is attributed to me as my as my mentor. I, I when I got started in the business, I truly started the uh, the consultancy uh, all on my own. And I started with my mind of just going into environmental, and I didn't even think about the uh, the health and safety side because I was an EPA guy at the time and was just transitioning into safety and health, even though my my career, my job was safety and health compliance. I was doing mostly EPA compliance, but uh, I truly started getting into the standards and I'm like, hold on, Title 29 is just like Title 40. All right. So I started flipping through Title 29 and getting a a good idea. Writers giving me ideas of, you know, well, you should look good here. And, uh, And I really appreciate all that. And then to boot, the man knows about food. If any of you ever get to his class and you want to find out where to eat, Ryder knows that man knows food. It's awesome. <laughs> you tell him about your food, Ryder. Well, the food thing is it, it, that's just the icing on the cake. You know, you got to have something else to talk to people about when you have Absolutely. a whole week. You know, it gets kind of boring after you've gone over subpart M as many times <laughs> as you do. But I mean, it's important. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. And the understanding and education is important, but um, you do have to, you know, you're in a, if that, 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 that's your hobby and your passion, you know, you definitely want to share it with people in class. And I do. And, and, you know, there's a reason for it. I, you know, food service was my first official profession um, besides being a, a student. I guess that was my first official uh, profession. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, but, you know, you learn in food, you learn consistency and you learn quality and quantity. You learn all those things and you learn safety, too. Believe it or not, you don't want to feed somebody bad food and get them sick. So, yeah, you know, you learn the quality of the preparation of food and, you know, that blends it into the risk management portion of safety and health. And it all kind of works together, uh, just like a good work rule is a good recipe. Um, you know, if, if this person good. understands their job and they understand their recipe, then you're going to get a consistent product. Hopefully, every time that recipe is performed to that level. Same thing yeah. with a good safety work rule. You know, if yeah. you, you follow it and and you have the ability to change it if you see something better. Uh, so I, I kind of bring all that to the table. But yeah, we we do. We talk about food a lot and. Uh, uh, I'll share a recipe or two with you know students and yeah, that's gets their attention. You know, when you ask them what a, what is a bechamel sauce, you know, it, it kind of <laughs> you know all of a sudden their eyes look up and they go, "What the heck did you just say?" You know, and so yeah, you, yeah, you know, I, I still don't know what it is. <laughs> I'm like, what? What is that sauce? It sounds good. It's just a typical white sauce. You know, when you sit down and break down the component parts of a bechamel sauce. Uh, you may have a student up in the um, up in the southern part of the country go, well, that's white gravy, and that's I said the same thing. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, so you know, most everybody un- knows it by white gravy, but yeah, you know, yeah. I think you know recipes are designed for a purpose. So is a policy procedure, and uh, they all have their their place in business. Uh, but it is a guide. It does help you. And, you know, I always go back to the term at OSHA called work rule. You know, what is a work rule? And yeah. that's which is very general description 
uh, anything that you're going to explain to somebody else? Do you have it available in a consistent, um, researchable, uh, documented work rule that's been tested and you're, you're, you're good to go. Okay. You know how to do that lockout tag out, you know, you know how to go into that confined space. So the same thing with, you know, developing a recipe, you know, I've been working on hot tamales now for three months. <laughs> Are you going to make them a uh, Cajun? <laughs> I, I've just got to learn how to make them. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and I think I finally hit on it. I, this is my fifth rodeo on hot tamales this year. And uh, so now I've got about four dozen in the freezer and they came out pretty good. So I think I right. finally have got the, uh, the corn husk and the meat and the pork and the the uh, the mess of flour. I think I finally got it all put together to where I've got a consistent product now. And all right, you got the formula. Got the formula. So it, it's the same in anything. You know, you got to get that consultant formula down that works for you. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's cool. That's uh, that takes a lot of self education too. Yeah. Well, I, I've been keeping you like way too long. So, uh, please, anything that you want to, um, promote or sell or, or anything coming up, just go ahead and, uh, have at it. I'll let you get a few minutes here to, to, you know, plug away, whatever you got. Just keep going (laughs) to, uh, www.cost.net and look at the schedule. If you want to take a cost class, um, you can go to the website and they'll have them listed by state locations uh they'll also have safe supervisor classes listed see where they're located because we're in pretty much every state or we're within 100 miles of uh of multiple locations where we teach it and i think they're adding a few on every year so i'll be in uh, i'll be in texarkana arkansas next week i was about to say where are you going to be uh Uh, the university of texas a&m uh, we'll be doing a COSS class up in uh, Texarkana, Arkansas. Um, we come back here next week and do some training locally, and then I'll be in Webster, Texas, where you've been going quite a bit. I'll be over there doing COSS at the end of this month. And um, so still got a lot of training to do this month. Month yeah, just cool. started. Yeah, so either uh, you could take writer's class, you can get my class. <laughs> so you got you got two options of uh, of teachers in this one, right? Uh, but the program's great either way. So cost.net, cosss.net, and uh, you could go ahead and register, get your safety designation with mm-hmm. the cost. And then if you wanted to get, if you're a manager, then you could do the cost M, which is certified or certificate of occupational safety managers. Mm-hmm. So that's a cost M designation or the cost is certified occupational safety specialist i guess i should have said that earlier if i didn't <laughs> but that's the cost program so either way you got your your uh your designation covered through us absolutely so i've enjoyed it it's been fun My yeah it's been time, cool so, um, all, right. all right thank you writer so thank much you. I- yeah your family i said hello 
Do you want to be a safety consultant? Listen to Dr. Jay Allen of Safety FM give his experience after taking the Safety Consultant Blueprint course. I have actually done research on different consultants and looked at different consulting courses and so on. There is a pretty fancy, very expensive consulting course that is out there. I have actually purchased the consulting course, was interested in it. It has good information. Don't get me wrong. But you have a consulting course that really drives people on to focusing on safety and how to become a safety consultant. I will tell you on your particular course, there was better information in that particular regards than the other consulting course that was more of a generalist form. But I figure I felt like I got more information out of yours on you giving people direct path on what to do step by step. But I really think that you have a genuine good product there that can really assist people if they're interested in becoming a safety consultant. Register for the Safety Consultant Blueprint at www.safetyconsultantblueprint.com. Enter code PODCAST for a special discount. The tip of the week. Well, this tip of the week is going to be kind of uh, add on to what me and Ryder were talking about earlier, and that is to get a safety designation that is going to match up with what you need. So I've talked about safety designations before, and truly it really breaks down to what is your goal with this safety designation? That is what it breaks down to. So if your goal with the safety designation is to get into chemical manufacturing or to uh, show off your IH, uh, which is very, you know, if you earn it, you earn it. You got to use it. So if that's your goal, then you're probably going to want to go with a CIH. Uh, you just really have to focus in and then choose your designation that's going to fit what you want and what your desired goal is going to be. So that's the uh, the short of it. But choosing what you really, really want as far as a safety designation is going to be a little bit on the difficult side. And the reason why I say that is uh, you can get tossed back and forth as to looking at all the different types of safety designations and get yourself stuck. So here it is. Let me give it to you this way. And you can take it and leave it however you want. But uh, this is my honest opinion. I see the cost students come in and out as an instructor. So, you know, eyes wide open. I'm an instructor for the Certified Occupational Safety Specialist Program and Certificate for Occupational Safety Manager Program. And I see, especially in the cost level, that level of uh, workers that are coming in that want to get that designation are generally boots in the ground type workers. So they're going to have a very good understanding of practical day-to-day type of knowledge and understanding and then they're coming to me in the cost program to get a little bit extra on the compliance the safety uh, side the health side behavioral based safety psychology they teach them all that within a week and then they'll test at the end of the week and throughout the week they get practical examples of 
different scenarios and situations that will cause a hazard to become activated, therefore getting someone ill or injured. And you go through a lot of things on that week with costs. So if you are caught up with where you want to go as far as your designation, some may come right open to you. You know exactly what you want. You probably sought it out and you're, you're in that program right now to get your designation. But if not, the tip of this week is... Go ahead and sign up for the cost designation. So I am calling it out by name. Uh, I don't know about, you know, if you want to find my schedule or not. Uh, that's a little bit different. But the program itself is just incredible. And truly, uh, the instructors, we give our students everything we have. And the instructors that they choose are professional instructors that are actively working so therefore you're getting right now practical knowledge as well as technical knowledge so it's a very important designation so i would go to costs c-o-s-s dot net and look at the locations find the location near you uh, they have been international locations i've taught in jamaica before uh, but find one that will work for you and the reason why you want to find a cost program or a cost M program, depending on what part of management you're in, is so that you could get that um, letters behind your name. And it's going to mean something because it's going to be very uh, practical for you. So you're going to get education when you take the cost class in a week. It's a lot of homework. I got to be honest with you. So you're going to have a 40 hour contact week and uh, that is going to give you a leg up for doing safety and health for your company or for your own business. And that was actually one of the decisions I had when I was about to go on my own. I thought about, you know, I have a safety designation and I have a master's degree. What am I holding out for? And I did it. I started it. So go to cost.net. Um, I'll give you my calendar right now for the rest of the year. Uh, the week of September 9th, I will be teaching the cost M program in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So go to cost.net and look for Louisiana and look, pick the Lake Charles cost M, which is the week of September 9th, the week of uh, September 16th, I'll be in Denver, Colorado, also teaching the cost M program. So go to uh, Colorado Safety Association, or you can also go to cost.net, look for Colorado and register for the class there. And I'm actually going to be in that area the following week with the Safety FM Roadshow, which I've been talking to you about. Uh, that is Safety FM Roadshow, which is going to be me and Dr. Jay Allen. Uh, I will do OSHA compliance two-day seminar. Jay will do a two-day seminar on human and organization performance. And then on Friday, we're going to do a roundtable discussion on that. So that is the week of uh, September 23rd. And then I, the week of September 30th, I will be in White Plains, New York. So if you're in the New York area and you want to take a cost class, go to cost.net, look up New York, sign up for the White Plains class. October 14th that week, I'll be in Mobile, Alabama, and that will be a cost class. 
the week of the 21st, I'll be in Orlando, Florida, and that is a COS M class. In November, I will be in Pasadena, Texas, and that is going to be the week of November 4th. And the December, ending up my year, I will have a COS M at Webster, Texas. That's the Houston area, and that is going to be... Uh, Monday, November 9th that week. And then the following week in Webster, Texas also is going to be the COSS program, C-O-S-S. So that is my schedule for the rest of the year. So if you are going to take the COSS program, I would first sign up for uh, the association that's hosting the COSS, become a member there, and then go do your COSS program after because you'll get a discount on the rate. So um, each location is different, so you're going to have to go to COSS.net and then look at locations and scroll down there you'll find a location that's closest to you tell them sheldon sent you so they'll kind of know that i talk about them so that is the tip of the week so go ahead get your safety designation uh hopefully i'll see you at one of those costs or costs and programs so that we can meet face to face i'm ecstatic about that prospect as well as meeting face to face for and if we could do it it'll be awesome but meeting face to face for one of the safety FM road shows. All right, that is the tip of the week. A little longer than usual, but I think you're going to uh, get a good understanding of why I wanted to get into detail more about the cost and cost sound program. All right, gang, I will see you next Monday. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Go get them. And uh, if you need to get a hold of me, go to safetyconsultantpodcast.com or you can email me at sheldon at sheldonprimus.com. All right, have a great rest of your week. This podcast is being sponsored by safetyconsultantblueprint.com. This episode has been powered by Safety FM. Here's the thing about new cherry vanilla Coke. Though cherries named first, all the flavors taste just as great. I mean, it could have just as easily been vanilla cherry Coke, or it could have been Coke cherry vanilla. And since it's two amazing flavors of Coke, it might have been Coke vanilla cherry Coke or cherry vanilla Coke Coke. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in France, which would make it Le Coke de la Vanilla de la Cherry de la Creme. New Cherry Vanilla Coke, so good together. And New Cherry Vanilla Coke Zero Sugar, same great taste, zero sugar.